pastor across town to uh, love and care for you, uh, not out of compulsion, but willingly, uh, because God has done a transforming work in their lives, and they so generously uh, give that in return to you that, he, that they would hope to see God do uh, similar works in each of your lives. And you should be uh, thankful to the Lord um, for the sweet gift of, of good elders uh, who love and care for you well. And it's my privilege to, to step in and, um, and fill those big shoes this morning in God's Word. And it's a reminder whenever we, uh, we uh, do have someone uh, fill in the pulpit for us uh, that we don't gather here around uh, a personality um, or a particular individual. Um, as we will see in our text today, uh, what we do here is we gather around God's Word. And God's Word uh, shapes everything that we've done together this afternoon. Uh, what we do and how we do and, and, and why we do what we do. And I hope that um, that's been noticeable even in the order of service. And so if you're new um, to OBC, uh, know that this is a church that uh, lives out what we're going to see in our text this afternoon. So if you would, join me in prayer and then let's jump into Nehemiah chapter 8 together. Lord, there are a million distractions. There are things running through my head and through the heads of each person in here. There are things going on outside this room. There are distractions in our pockets and in our hearts that are pulling us away from focusing on you. By your grace, through your spirit, would you now give us uh, an attention to you and to your word? What a gracious gift it is that we get to gather around your word to hear from you, that you would love us enough to teach us and rebuke us and correct us and to train us in righteousness, that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are. We made it all the way to February. And, uh, and just a couple weeks ago, we celebrated New Year's, and maybe you're, a, you're an avid New Year's watcher. You, you keep up with uh, you know, the, big, the big festivals and all the big cities, and, and particularly, you know, when we think of New Year's Eve, we often think of uh, the ball dropping in Times Square. And, and, and so there was a huge gathering, of course, this year in Times Square, and, and, and all the, the regular things were there, you know, all the recognizable faces and the, the nameless masses. Right, there, there was confetti, and there was a big glittering ball, and there was loud music, and, and all kinds of things happened. And, and uh, you know, confetti rained down, and, and strangers hugged, and, and resolutions were made, and, and immediately broken. And, and, you know, we ask, now here we are in February, to what end? Like, what, what was the point of all that? Why, why did that really matter? There was, there was tons of time, tons of expense, tons of emotion. What did it all mean? And it might be that in the future, with the benefit of hindsight, we'll look back on that particular gathering in Times Square and know that something really meaningful happened, life-changing, maybe world-shaping. But I doubt it. Like I would suspect that even with the benefit of hindsight, we're going to realize that everything that came out of that particular gathering in that particular square on that particular night really resembled the confetti that fell down on top of it. It was just light and weightless and flimsy and forgettable. But what I want to do today is I want us to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to find a different gathering in a square filled with people. But the distinct difference here 
is that even though there are some similarities, there's you know, big names and, and nameless masses and, and there's lots of emotion, there's very little confetti and there's no glittering balls, but I do think what we're going to find is far more significant. Because what we're going to find in this story, even though it was 2,500 years ago, is that everything in this story uh, resembles the foundation that it is built on. And that foundation is the Lord and his word. And that foundation, well, it's not like confetti at all. It's weighty and it's sturdy and it's unforgettable and it's life-shaping for us. So if you haven't already, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 8. And if you're using, uh, if you don't have a Bible, and um, we've provided Bibles, they're on the table just as you come in. Uh, and if you're using one of those, uh, today we're on page 424. Now, it can be hard to jump into, uh, you know, chapter 8 of a story, or even more important, it's hard to jump into page 424 of a really complicated uh, book like the Bible. And so, uh, before I read our passage, I just kind of catch us up to where we are. And so... As we talked about, as Austin talked about before, before we read Psalm chapter 95, despite all that God, God has done for his people, his people have run from him. And time and time again, they have abandoned him and they have forsaken him. And he has finally sent them off into exile. And it seems like he has abandoned them. Despite his promises to care for them and, and to redeem them, it seems like he's forgotten them, but he hasn't. And in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we see God rescuing those people once again, not because they deserve it, but because he deserves it. He deserves to rescue them. He deserves to have it because he is good and he is holy. So he's drawing his people back to himself just like he said he would. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, if you don't know, uh, these two books, they, they kind of fit as a pair. They may, they may even have the same author uh, for, for the most part compiled together. And they're the story of how God is bringing his people back from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem. And so uh, they take place over 70 years, give or take. You've got the first wave come back from Babylon. And then later on, Ezra uh, comes back at the end of the book of Ezra uh, to teach the people the word. And then about 15 years later, Nehemiah shows up. And Nehemiah uh, is sent by King Artaxerxes in to, uh, to rebuild the wall and that wall is miraculously completely rebuilt in just 52 days. If you've got your Bible open, just turn over with me uh, to Nehemiah chapter 6. It, so uh, up to this point, uh, the wall has been rebuilt. And then we see at the end of Nehemiah uh, chapter 6, uh, verse 15, it says, uh, The wall was completed in 52 days on the 25th day of the month of Elul. And so that's important because uh, all the action of this story so far uh, has built up over these 52 days. And now on the 25th day of the sixth month, the work is complete. And then what we get in chapter 7 is that we kind of recount how God has brought all of his people back together. And look with me at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7 ends, and it says, When the seventh month came... And the Israelites had settled in their towns. So the last line of chapter 7, and you'll see in the CSB, it actually kind of pulls it together in one paragraph to start chapter 8. And so uh, chap the seventh month has arrived. And God has orchestrated all these things 
to finally build his people on the very on the foundations that they need to be built on. It seems like it, it's all it's all finally come together. All the promises have been kept, the temples rebuilt, the wall is secure, and the people have finally returned to their homes. They're ready to start life again as God's people. But just as the temple had to be built on strong foundations and the wall had to be built on footings, so the groundwork for the people of God must be laid before they can move forward. And so that's why we need Nehemiah chapter 8. All the action of Nehemiah up to this point feels like it's been about the wall, but it's actually about the people. And it's bringing us to this point in chapter 8 to find the foundation for his people. So read, follow along as I read. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a high wooden platform made for this purpose. Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah stood beside him on his right. To his left were Pediah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, and Meshalem. Ezra opened the, door, the book in full view of the people, since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathiah, Hodiah, Masai, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, who were Levites, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go and eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions, and have a great celebration, because they understood the words that were explained to them. On the second day, the family heads of all the people, along with the priests and Levites, assembled before the scribe Ezra to study the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites would dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and spread this news throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring back branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make shelters, just as it is written. The people went out, 
brought back branches and made shelters for themselves on each of their rooftops and courtyards, the court of the house of God, the square by the water gate, and the square by the Ephraim gate. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua son of Nun until that day, and there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day, from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Amen. Amen. Well, this is my prayer for us, brothers and sisters, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he would be your strength and your joy, and that you would find him more clearly and more beautifully in the pages of God's word every time it's read. So here's what we're going to do this afternoon. I'm going to walk us back through this passage step by step. I'm going to give you some signposts along the way. And then I'll share some implications for each of those signposts at the end. So our passage uh, basically outlines uh, two parallel stories. So the first story happens uh, strictly on the first day of the seventh month of that year. And then the second story takes place from day two all the way to the 23rd day of the same month. But each story follows the same pattern. So first, God's people, they gather around God's word. They listen to it read and explained. And when they understand it, because it's been clearly taught to them by their leaders, then they respond accordingly and they obey God's word. And each time it culminates in their exceeding joy, their tremendous joy at the provision of the Lord. So you could break down these two stories into six or seven steps uh, each time. Uh, And so just so that we don't get lost in the weeds, I'm just going to use three steps to kind of move us through these two stories. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work us through the three steps for the first story, and then I'll work us back through the three steps for the second story, and then I'll have us look at what are the implications for our lives today on each of those three steps. So step one is they gather, and we see this particularly in verses one and two. So they're going to gather, they're going to understand, and they're going to rejoice. Just those will be our three steps, and we'll work through those three times. So they're going to gather. It says in verse one, all the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. All the people gathered. It said later on that all the exiles did this. The author of this passage doesn't want us to miss who the main characters are in this story because it'd be really easy for us to fixate on the names that we recognize, maybe Ezra or Nehemiah or those lists of uh, Levite names that are kind of confusing. But humanly speaking, the main characters in this chapter are the ordinary people of God. So 22 times in just these 18 verses, the people of Israel are mentioned. And most often, they're referred to as all the people. So the author even even goes out of his way to repeat the fact that the men, the women, and all who who could listen with understanding had assembled. So basically saying, anyone who had ears to hear was there to listen. 
and they had gathered voluntarily. The emphasis in this chapter is on the initiative of these ordinary people to assemble as one. This mass of people, they have one objective, they have one mind, one purpose. They want to hear the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so they call on Ezra. And Ezra is the perfect choice for this. Because when Ezra is introduced to us in the book that bears his name in chapter 7, starting in verse 6, it says, Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So exactly what they want to hear, this guy is skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The good hand of his God was on him, it says. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statues and rules in Israel. What a wonderful description of Ezra. I mean, what an epithet. Wouldn't that be wonderful that that was written on our tombstones? Here lies who loved the word of the Lord and committed, set his heart to do it and to teach it to others. Now, We haven't actually seen Ezra in about 14 years. He kind of disappeared in the narrative, but he's ready for center stage. But he's not the main attraction. The people here, again, have assembled to hear from the Lord, from the Lord and from his word. And so we're not exactly sure uh, what what passages Ezra read. It does tell us uh, that he was there uh, from daybreak until noon. Uh, which may seem like a terribly long time, but it actually probably isn't enough time to read all of the first five books of the Bible and to explain them. So he's probably making some, some pastoral choices there. But what he's attempting to bring to them is God's word, not Ezra's words, not Ezra's opinions, not Ezra's collection of the best things we need to do next uh, as the people of God. He is bringing them as best as possible God's word. And that's what were to gather around, to gather around God's word, delivered by his prophets and his apostles directly to us. What a gift that we have a God who speaks and that we can gather around God's word. And so it says in verse 2 that Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And, and, And we're meant to take note of how the Lord has sovereignly orchestrated all of these things to set it up so that Nehemiah would be sent back from Babylon. He would travel. He would arrive uh, in Jerusalem at a particular time. And that through incredible hard work and the work of the Lord, 52 days later, they they would be ready at the end of the sixth month to gather together at the beginning of the seventh month around God's word. And that's not an accident. The seventh month is incredibly important. Not only is it seventh, which uh, would have been uh, the month of completion, seven carries a lot of weight uh, in the Old Testament, but specifically, God has timed it that there are three festivals in the seventh month. And so here they arrive on the first one, the, the Feast of Trumpets, and they are ready to hear from God's word, have it blasted over them, if you will. And so it's not an accident that the people will celebrate these specific feasts at the end of the second exodus and their return to the promised land, just like they were commanded 
to uh, celebrate them at the end of the first exodus as they first came in to the promised land. They're reenacting their own history in, in a statement of faith to the Lord. And these people, they didn't show up here haphazardly or out of tradition or just out of boredom. There's nothing else going on. They might as well just get together or follow the crowd and see what everyone else was up to. Up to. No, they, they had gathered purposefully. And that purpose was to understand God's word. And so they've gathered, and now they're going to understand. And we see this in verses 3 through 11. So Ezra read out loud on a platform built for the purpose, facing all the people. And he did it from early morning until midday, from sunrise uh, to high noon. Okay, And so by comparison, none of Trey's sermons compare in length. Okay, Let's, We can give the guy some slack. Maybe you'll offer that to me here in just a few moments. So, but Ezra isn't at this alone, praise God. The author goes to great lengths to introduce uh, to us a team that's being used uh, to benefit God's people. It's not just uh, Ezra, even though uh, he's inspired as one of God's prophets by the Holy Spirit. No, beside him are, are 13 other men gathered with him on the platform and then spread out in the crowd are another 13 Levites uh, specifically there to make sure that the people uh, hear God's word. They're, they're helping with either the reading or the teaching or even just making sure all the scrolls are pulled out and, and delivered. Um, but the author goes to great lengths to help us see that it's not just Ezra that's doing this work. It's that the people need all of these leaders invested together, committed to this one thing, to deliver God's word to God's people. But remember, the main characters are the people themselves. The men, the women, and the children, they are, they're gathered around God's word with the purpose of understanding it rightly. And so they listen attentively, it says. And their body language expresses that focus. They, they face Ezra. They, they stand at attention. Kind of like a, when, when a judge enters a room or, or, or a bride in a wedding, they're giving their full and undivided attention to God's word as it's read to them. And that leads them to worship. Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God, and all the people cry, Amen. Amen. Now, if you grew up in a church that, uh, that you hear that all the time, like I grew up in a church where it was, it was normal for us to, to respond to the pastor or to the reading of God's word with amen, amen, uh, then that may just seem like a, just a, a normal everyday phrase. For some of you, that's a completely new, uh, a new, uh, new term for you. Um, but when we think about amen, amen, we don't really think about like what it, what it really means. But probably what's happening here, there's a couple options. They could be saying something like, truly, truly, like they are agreeing uh, with the truth of the word that's read to them. Or it could be something really hopeful, like, like may it be, may it be, may, may, may the promises that have just been read, may those come uh, to fruition. Or it could be very submissive. And I actually think this is probably what's happening here is they are, they're submitting under God's word. They're even taking on the commands and even the, 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 um, the punishments, the rebuke that's coming upon them. They're saying, so be it. So be it. And they're lifting up their hands submissively. They're bowing down their faces before the Lord. They are responding to the Lord in a way that the people would respond to a mighty king. To say, 
Truly, truly, you are the God. Your, your word is true and we submit to it. And these 13 Levites that we see uh, in verse 7, they're, they're dispersed among the people and their role is to explain the law to the people as they stood in their places. And they read out of the book of the law, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. So the CSB here translates this, uh, says this is translating. Uh, it, the Hebrew is something like paragraph for paragraph. It's, it's working through it line by line. And it's really possible that because the Israelites have been, uh, have been exiled, some for hundreds of years, their families have been exiled for hundreds of years, are just now coming back to Jerusalem. They literally may struggle to understand the Hebrew. As the Hebrew is read, it's needing to be translated for them into Aramaic. So like Daniel is written in Aramaic, in part because it's written for the nations and for the people while they're in exile. And part of it's written in Hebrew because it's written for God's people even as they look forward to the hope of returning out of exile. And so it could be that that's exactly what the Levites are doing. Or it could be that they're just breaking down the, the, the word as it's read for them in Hebrew. The people understand it, but they don't know what it means. The, the goal here is what it says at the end of verse 8. Giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. The goal here isn't just to read it. That, that would be like if your goal this year uh, was uh, to hear the whole Bible and you just put it on like four times speed and play it in your commute. And yes, every word came out and it hit your ears, but you had no ability to understand and respond rightly to it. And you could say at the end of a month, yes, I've, I've heard every word of the Bible, but what effect, what, what, what meaning would it have in your life that you would understand and respond rightly to it. No, we, the goal for these people is that they would understand God's word. And the markers for understanding here are their ability to explain it to others, like the Levites do, or to be able uh, to respond in joy to it in worship. Because what, what happens here, what we see, is that it's, it's not just the knee-jerk reaction uh, that is the right reaction. We actually sometimes have to be trained in what the right reaction to God's word is. And so you see there in chapter 9, or excuse me, in verse 9, that the people are responding by weeping. And, and weeping is a good and right response to God's word. To be grieved by God's word, to hear it, and for it to explain how holy God is and how holy we are to be and to realize in light of it as you understand it that we are not that holy, that should produce right and righteous grief in us. But the irony here would be that if the people only grieve that over the fact that they've not been rightly responding to God's word, that in their grief that they would continue to wrongly respond to God's word. Because the right response on the first day of the seventh month, is to host a festival, to rejoice that God is a saving God and he has provided all these wonderful things for them. So they can't go on grieving. Their consciences need to be tuned to God's word and they need to respond rightly. Understanding rightly leads to responding rightly. And the right response here is to rejoice. They have gathered, they have understood, and now they rejoice. 
They rejoice, it says, because they have understood the words that were declared to them. Because the joy of the Lord is their strength. This literally means that the joy of the Lord is their refuge. The, The joy, the Lord's joy is their place of strength. It's their place of protection. In the joy of the Lord, they find all the provision they could ever need. So they can rightly respond to God's word. Quickly, let's see this pattern play out again over day over the second day. So first, they gather again. They gather, it says, the heads of the, the, of the father's houses gather together in verse 13. And they gather again for the same reasons, to study the words of the law with Ezra. And then they understand it again. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should dwell in shelters during the festival of the seventh month. So they're studying and they find this truth. We're supposed to host this other festival and it's coming up. And we know that they rightly understand it because they, like the Levites, are able to instruct others. And so they go back to their homes and they tell everybody, hey, later on this month, we're supposed to host the celebration uh, of the feast of, the, of shelters, of booths. And so what we need to do is we need to go out into the countryside and we need to gather in all these branches and we need to bring them back into town and we need to build these tents for us and we're going to sleep in them and we're going to dwell in them for eight days. And that's exactly what they do. They understand it and they respond rightly to it. They obey it and, and look at the, the result. They rejoice. And, and man, do they, they rejoice. It says in verse 17, And the whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. So they host the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Shelters, with such fervor and such faith that it said that such a feast had not been hosted to all the way back to when it was inaugurated among the people uh, thousands of year, a thousand years before. And so you may not remember much about the Feast of Booze. Let me just remind you real fast. So we're, we're told about the Feast of Booths in, uh, in Exodus, in Leviticus, and in Numbers. And, and the people are are to commemorate how God had cared for them in the Exodus. It's kind of like a nationwide campout. Right? Everyone is required to come to Jerusalem uh, to live in these booths. And it's one of these three festivals that every Israelite man was supposed to celebrate every year. So we see Jesus celebrating this uh, festival in John chapter 7. And so even though uh, they had wandered through the desert uh, for 40 years, um, they, they, through all of that, they're reminded that God had protected them. And so even now, as they've just built this huge stone wall to protect them, they're going to reenact the exodus and to say, All right, we don't trust in walls. We don't trust in our own strength. We're going to uh, build tents for us made out of palm branches, tents that can't even keep the weather out let alone our enemies out, because we're not trusting in these structures. Our hearts are set on God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And we can do this not just for one night, but for eight nights. And not just a few of us, but all of us can do this 
because we are trusting in the Lord. This, this becomes an ordinance for them. It's, a, it's an outward obedience that represents an inward faith. It's the same ways that we practice baptism or the Lord's Supper. These are, these are outward obediences that represent what we truly have already believed and what the Lord has done in our heart. And so as we try to understand all of chapter 8, let me just boil it down to this idea that, that the word of the Lord leads the people of the Lord to the joy of the Lord. That's what I think we see as we've moved through these uh, patterns of, of gather, understand, and rejoice. It's that the word of the Lord leads the people of the Lord to the joy of the Lord. So I want us to close our time by thinking about what does that mean for us? Right here, right now, Ozark Baptist Church, 2024. Well, let me encourage you, OBC, to gather purposefully. Gather purposefully. As God's people, may we be those who gather purposefully around God's word. As we said at the beginning, may it drive what we do and why we do it and how we do all that we do as a congregation. So first, let me ask, is your heart in it? Is your heart in this? Do you love to gather around God's word? Or does it, at times, does it feel like a chore or a nuisance or, or even an aggravation? Because if that's true, as it's all too often true with me, then let's start there. Start there by, by confessing that uh, to the Lord and to one another. And then pray that the Lord would give you a hunger and give you a thirst uh, that only God's word, illuminated by God's spirit to reveal God's son, that only that can satisfy. And not just you as an individual, but you as a part of this congregation, that that would mark this church, that, that we hunger and thirst for what can only come through God's word, illuminated God's, by God's spirit, pointing uh, to God's son. And that isn't always easy. And so we need one another to encourage one another, to walk alongside one another, to help one another in that. And then secondly, individually, let me encourage you to grow in the disciplines related to God's word. It's always a good time uh, to start something new, um, especially when it comes to Bible intake. And so, uh, as we said before, we all probably made a bunch of resolutions a month ago. Some of them have already fallen by the wayside, all right? But even if that's not true, it's always a good time uh, to set a new standard and a new uh, commitment to be in God's word. And not just to read it, just to read it, but to read it and to study it and to meditate on it and to memorize it and to discuss it with others and to apply it with purpose. So think carefully about how you intend to gather around God's word with others. Are you disciplined to be here on Sunday afternoons? What needs to change in your life uh, during the week, in your work schedules, in your, your kids' uh, extracurricular activities, in what you do on Saturday nights or what you do on Sunday afternoons so that you can prioritize being here to be gathered around God's word on the Lord's day? And then as you think about how you're bringing in God's word into your life and centering your life upon it, try not to think too individualistically. Remember, what they do here is they, they gather together around God's word. 
And so intentionally gather with other Christians to study God's word. Maybe it's with the Amos studies we talked about before, or maybe it's something that you and your spouse or your roommates or your coworkers are going to start uh, together to, to read God's word together. Maybe it's a longer reading plan, or maybe it's just a, a short book for just a few weeks. And then families, wh- whatever stage uh, you're in, How are you guys gathering around God's word and pulling others into those gatherings? I would especially encourage our fathers to take the example that we see laid out here, particularly those heads of households that we saw in the second story, who who stand in to gather gather around God's word and then bring it back into their homes. And so I know that in our own home, um, like when our kids were were extra young, uh, the, the storybook Bibles by uh, Kevin DeYoung most recently, but um, the, Marty, the one by Marty Mikowski have been incredibly helpful for our family. Uh, to just in a regular pattern of reading God's word and hearing the gospel from it and connecting it to Christ and talking about it as a family. And now that our kids are starting to get a little older, we have a combination of most days of the week, we're just reading through the uh, book of the Bible. So right now we're reading through John, which also happens to be what our uh, sermon uh, series is at UBC. And so on Saturday nights, we read the sermon text in preparation for Sunday, because the goal is that we can all gather together around God's word so that we can understand it. And that's the goal, is seek to understand God's word rightly. Don't just gather around it, but gather around it to understand it. And so that starts with our orientation uh, towards God's word, that we believe that it really has something to say to us, that it really is going to change us. And that requires humility on our part uh, to, to submit to God's word so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our Savior. And that also means that we need to have humility Uh, to listen and submit to the teaching of those faithful believers that the Lord has placed over us. Because did you see in the chapter how incredibly important teachers were for the people? Yes, the main characters here are the the average uh, people in the congregation, but they needed skillful leaders to direct them towards the right understanding and the right response to God's word. Without them, they would have been left with the wrong response. But because of those faithful teachers, it's like light, it's like dawn breaks over them. And they're able to worship the Lord with glad and sincere hearts. So, uh, members here at OBC, pray for your leaders and be ready to submit to them, as Hebrews 13 calls us to do. And not in a way that makes it hard on them, because that would be of no benefit to you. And then elders here, or, or those who aspire to be elders, let me encourage you, to, um, to teach and rebuke with all patience and teaching, to exhort your people with love. Your job's not to scold or, or to lord over them or, or to abdicate the privilege of teaching God's word to them, but instead it's to shepherd them to understand and to rightly handle God's word because you don't want to be the only teachers in this congregation. You want to raise up teachers in this congregation because All of us as Christians are called to be disciple makers, which is inherently a teaching job. We're all to be teachers. And so whether that's with uh, uh, children or children in the faith or or, or those that are peers or even those that we get to uh, point towards more faithfulness who are more experienced and more mature than us, we're all looking to help others 
grow more faithful in Christ. And so parents, take this as a particular charge to you, to love the kiddos that God's blessed you in your home, to teach them and to set them up well to understand God's word, even when we come in here. And then kiddos, let me just speak to you for just a minute. Let me encourage you to take advantage of the time that we spend here together. These sermons are designed to point you towards Jesus, and there's nothing you need more than him. And so let me encourage you, when you come, come to listen. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't bring other things with you. It could be other things that you need to be able to give your maybe slightly divided attention, not maybe your undivided attention to it. But the goal when you come here is to, uh, to listen to God's word and to help others listen. And so whatever you choose to bring in here with you, bring it so you can have those goals in mind, to listen and to help others to listen. And so that might mean that we listen more with a pen in hand and not a phone in hand, right? Because all of us, we're, we're not as good at multitasking as we think we are, right? And so having something that's built to bring distraction in uh, might not be the best tool to use. So even thinking about the tools all of us bring into this time to hear God's word so we can rightly respond to it. And we need to remember that we have this incredible privilege as English speakers to have tons and tons of resources that God has given us so that we can rightly understand God's word. And we should see that as a blessing and we should be thankful to the Lord for it. And it should prompt us to pray for those brothers and sisters around the globe who don't have that privilege. As Greg prayed for the, our brothers and sisters in Egypt, whose opportunities to gather around God's word are, are, are sometimes dwindling and it requires them to do so uh, uh, under danger and, and threat. So we should pray for them and we should send resources and do whatever that we can to support them. And that might even mean sending some of the best of us to go to those places where they have yet to hear God's word. That's the right response. What did the people do here when they had the opportunity to, to, uh, to celebrate as they understood God's word? Well, one of the things that they were called to do was to, to feast, to eat, and to drink. But also, it says in verse 12, to send portions and to have a great celebration. So they're to send to those who lack so that they can join in the celebration. And so it's a right response for us when we treasure God's word, when we feast on his word, to send it to others who don't have access to it. Whether that's a, a kid here in the classes at UBC or, or someone on the other side of the globe who doesn't have access to God's word. And that could mean our dollars and it could also mean our lives. Whether that's just down the hall, giving a Sunday or two a month or a year uh, to serve kiddos and to teach them God's word, or, or time giving up lunch breaks so you can meet with a coworker uh, to read God's word, or even setting aside other hopes and dreams or the hopes and dreams others have had for you uh, to go overseas to places where you're going to have to learn multiple languages to be able to translate God's word into a language that has never had God's access to the word of God so that those people can join us one day around the feast of the lamb, worshiping our savior as he's promised that every tribe and tongue and nation will join us around the throne. So what, it's a, the right response to God's word is for us to be generous to share it with others so that they can rejoice alongside us. They can rejoice alongside us, and we should rejoice greatly. And our final thoughts, rejoice greatly at the gift of God's word. 
at the gift of God's word. And let me ask you, where is your joy found? What is the the source of your strength? What's the the refuge that you have uh, to weather the trials of life and and, and to carry you safely uh, to the joys of the next? Is your joy, is your strength, is it like the confetti in Times Square? Is it weightless and flimsy and forgettable? Or have you set your life on the firm foundation of Christ, on the word of God incarnate as your Lord and Savior? If if you're not a Christian and you've never trusted in Christ to save you, well, Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 3 would, would call you to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and instead look to Jesus. Who, who would be the founder and, and the perfecter of your faith? For Christ, because of the joy that was set before him, as he looked forward to greatly rejoicing, he endured the cross. And he despised the shame of death by rising from the grave. And now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, and he is preparing a place for all who would trust in him. And he's inviting them to come into communion with him. And if you will turn from your sin and you will trust in him to be your savior, he will be your joy everlasting. He will be your refuge. And I I can't guarantee that with that will come an elimination of all trials and, and all temptations. But it will mean that you'll have a ballast of assurance that the joy of all creation. Christ, that that he will be yours forevermore. And and Christian, remember that. Remember that as life is hard, as you get disappointing news, as, as, as what seems to be going one direction in the Lord's providence goes a completely different direction, as you deal with the consequences of maybe your sin or the sin of others, know that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you can greatly rejoice. There can be tremendous joy in your life despite your circumstances. Because our God is good. He is good. And we know that when the tent that is our earthly home, when it's destroyed, we have a building from God, a house that's not made with hands, but it's eternal in the heavens. And so while we're still in this tent just as the Israelites were in their tents, in their booths, right, in their shelters, we groan, 2 Corinthians 5 says, being burdened that what is mortal may one day be swallowed up by life. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we'll be away from the Lord, so we walk by faith and not by sight. And we need one another to do that. It is really hard in the hardest days to rejoice solo. But it's often a lot easier to rejoice when we have brothers and sisters in Christ who join us in the sorrow and who point us towards the joy. So whether while it's taking the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes together as a church, or it's breaking bread tonight at Slim's after the service, or it's saying grace over your own lunch this week just by yourself, Remember that God's provision in this life, it's just a foretaste of that eternal provision that he has made for us in Christ. 
the bread and the wine, they point to the marriage supper of the Lamb and the new heavens and the new earth and the fellowship we will have with one another and with brothers and sisters in Christ from all over the globe and throughout time who have trusted in their Redeemer to provide for them forever. And so the joy we experience now, often despite tears and groanings, will one day give way to an eternal joy where there are no tears, where there are no sorrows, where there's only Christ forevermore. So in the meantime, by God's grace, may the word of the Lord point the people of the Lord to the joy of the Lord until we see him face to face. Let's pray.